I got it. Okay. Delighted to be with you and that war at the meeting last night decided to come back this morning. I'm sure there were a lot who were there last night who decided not to make the effort to come back. Uh, however, I'm glad you're here. And uh, may I put in a plug for Children's Bible Mission? I am Deputation Secretary. And I would like to say this, that we work in quite a number of states uh, in the Southland, and uh, we have a need uh, in Children's Bible Mission, and that is that there are places where we lack personnel. Uh, we are a strange mission, a very strange mission, I think, because wherever we go, uh, and I talk about Children's Bible Mission, and I say we have a need, everybody figures, oh boy, he's going to put in a commercial, and he's going to say we need money. But you know, it's a strange thing. Uh, in all the 30 years that I've been associated with Children's Bible Mission, uh, the Lord has always provided the financial need. Uh, don't ask me how or why. I cannot, uh, sometimes I can't fathom. I was director for many years in Tennessee area, and many a time we would open camp with like $200 in the bank, and we would spend $200 a day, and camp would open like one day away, and we would have 70 days of camp, or somewhere about 14 to $16,000 of expenditure, and we would have $200 in, in, the, uh, in the till, and uh, I used to worry. I used to tell my wife not to worry. Uh, one night she laid awake, and I asked her sometime about 3 o'clock in the morning, why are you awake? And she said, I'm worried. I, see, she takes care of all the household bills. And I said, why are you worried? She said, well, every time I try to get the ends to meet, somebody moves the ends. And uh, so I said, was God dead? She said, no. I said, is he sick? She said, no. I said, well, turn over, go to sleep. He'll take care of you. But you know, when it comes close to camp, and you got $200 in the till, and uh, you're going to open camp on Monday, and uh, like that Saturday, I remember this one year particularly, and we had about $200, and that Saturday, somebody said the swimming pool motor went out, and I called in a, uh, a man that repairs the motor, and he said, I repaired it so much, it's not worth fixing anymore. So I said, what do you recommend? He said, get a new one. I said, how much? He said, $400. So I spent 400 out of the 200 I had, and, uh, and then I laid in bed that night, and it was like three in the morning, the lights were on. My wife woke up, she said, what's the matter? I said, I'm worried. She said, why? I said, I only got $200 and I spent 400 of it, and I'm gonna open camp. It's gonna go for 70 days, $200 a day. And she looked at me, she said, God sick? I said, no. Is he dead? I said, no. She said, well, roll over, go to sleep. He'll take care of you. And he always does. This is the amazing thing. However, when it comes to workers, ah, that's something different. Somewhere. We have open doors. We have opportunities. We have counties where for two years now there's not been a worker. And the area is just begging for somebody to come in. We're looking for a camp director. I, I've been taking over for the last two years as camp director, but at my age, I'm no director anymore. I, I just watch it go. I, I hope I just get out of the way as it comes, see? 
many years ago, I could run with the kids. Now I watch a ball bounce and I get tired. I sit down. <laughs> see? And, uh, but nevertheless, somewhere I'm sure that the Lord has somebody for that particular job that is there. And not only in our area, but in North Carolina, in Alabama, in <coughs> Pennsylvania, in Virginia, and in Florida. They're looking for people to come and to help. Now, you might wonder what the pay scale is. And the pay scale, well, you trust the Lord for your money, just like missionaries do, foreign missionaries, or any other kind. I talked to a young lady uh, just recently in one of the colleges, and she was very much interested. She was graduating. I, I could be with you, she said, this summer. And she was all excited, and she said, how much do you pay? And I said, well, you trust the Lord see your church and maybe your church will underwrite part of your support and you know the lights went out in her eyes and she said oh and I said but I have a friend who will underwrite all your expenses and the lights went on again she smiled real big and I said he'll take care of everything for you she said really I said yes his name is Jesus Christ and the lights went out again somehow or other we find it difficult to trust the Lord Jesus Christ do we not well, this morning I would like to turn your attention to the third chapter of uh, the book of Exodus. And we're going to look at a man by the name of Moses. And let me bring you up to date as far as Moses is concerned to the third chapter. He was born at a time in history when all boy babies born to the Hebrew nation were to be put to death because he was born in Egypt and because the Hebrew people were getting too powerful and Pharaoh wanted the boy babies to be put to death and when he was born his mother hid him for a while and he for three months she managed to do pretty well and then she took him and put him in a little basket took him down to the river and Pharaoh's daughter found Moses and took him home and she raised him as her own son and Moses' mother was his nurse and I'm sure that in the years that she had charge of him she taught him much of Hebrew history taught him much of the Hebrew God but as the custom is at the age of 13 he must have gone off to school and uh, there he became learned in the ways of the Egyptians until in the book of Acts it is said of Moses that he became a man who was mighty in word and in deed. If you read between the lines that means that he was a great orator, a good speaker, that he was all Egyptian halfback at the University of Cairo. He was the Heinzman, no they didn't have Heinzman back in those days, but he was the trophy winner nevertheless. And everybody admired him because he was the man voted most likely to succeed. But at the age of 40, it came to his heart to visit the people of God. And at the age of 40, he came to that place in his life where he yielded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And he bowed himself before the Lord and said, God, I will identify myself with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. 
I think that was quite a step for him to make for the simple reason that I do not think that from the age of 13 on he was exposed to too much uh, conservative teaching of his day. But nevertheless, he made his choice. And after he made his choice, he killed one Egyptian soldier and then he fled in terror from the wrath of Pharaoh and he fled out to the land of Midian and for 40 years he becomes a shepherd. Now the Egyptians and the Egyptian culture looked upon shepherds as an abomination. That's the lowest thing that anybody could become, a shepherd. That was a nasty word. And there he was. And as the story opens in the third chapter of uh, Exodus, Moses has been here now for 40 years. And I'm sure that if one were to assay his life up to this point, one would have to say that Moses was a failure. What has he accomplished? Killed one Egyptian, fled in terror, 40 years a shepherd, and now on the backside of a desert. And I could picture him many a winter night warming his hand by the side of a fire. The sheep may be huddled up alongside of him as coat collar turned up and as he would sit there and warm himself he would think to himself was it worth it is this what I dedicated my life to the Lord for to become this oh why did I do it it doesn't make sense I cannot understand why I did it I am nothing but a, a shepherd just a failure and I'm sure most everybody would have agreed with him however we read that in verse 1 that Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law the priest of Midian and he led the flock to the west side of the desert and came to the mountain of God even to Horeb and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush and he looked and behold the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed now Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not near here. Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And then the Lord delivers a message to him. The Lord says in verse 6, I am the God, the Father, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. God reveals himself at this moment that he is the covenant God, the one who promised uh, to Abraham that he would bless his seed uh, forever and repeated the covenant to Isaac, repeated the covenant to Jacob. And then the Lord says in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry by the reason of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. He is a God of mercy, 
and he knows the problems that the Israelites are going through. And then he says in verse 8, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a large and good land, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And he is the God of grace who is willing to deliver the Israelites. But I want you to notice that as the Lord speaks, the Lord says three times, I am the God of the covenant. I have, I have seen the affliction. And the Lord says, I am come to deliver uh, these people out of the hand of the taskmasters. And then down in verse 10, the Lord says, Come now therefore, and I will send thee to Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, this was God's message to this man back in the desert. I am the God who has been for many years faithful to your fathers. I am the God who has heard the cry of the people in their distress. I am the God who is going to deliver them, and I'm going to send you. Now, what is his natural reaction to this? And I'm, I think maybe that his reaction would be much the same as a reaction that you and I might feel when somebody is challenging us to do a job that we feel is far beyond our capabilities. He becomes frightened. And then he says to the Lord, and he says in verse 11, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Somehow or other, he got the message twisted, didn't he? He got to thinking he was the one that was going to bring those people out of Israel. And the Lord didn't say, Moses, I want you to bring them out. The Lord said, I'm going to bring them out. I'm just going to send you. You're my messenger boy. But he kind of thought he was going to be the deliverer. He was going to have to do the job. And uh, he said, but I can't do this. And sometimes we have to, and this is true in my own life. I have sometimes to, to stand back and say, Lord, who is doing this anyway? You or me? And I have a great, a great, problem of getting myself in the way. Sometimes I like myself a little bit too much and I think that maybe I have so many attributes that God could use and then every once in a while the Lord has to slap me down and say, look, you don't have anything at all. Unless I do it, it's not done at all. It must be the Lord. And the, the Lord says to him, certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt and ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And then Moses comes up with another objection. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and shall say unto them, 
The God of your fathers had sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What will I say then? If you'll excuse me, I have an idea that Moses didn't know too much about God at this time. I really don't. Because this question, if they ask me what his name is, what will I say unto them? Who are you? Who are you really, God? This is the, the thought behind this. What will I tell them? He wasn't that well acquainted with the Lord. And sometimes I get the impression that God doesn't always use the man who has all the scholarly knowledge. God uses the man with all the scholarly knowledge, but sometimes God uses the man who is just willing to be used. I think of a story, and this is a true story, by the way. There was a man by the name of Casey who had been converted and who was working at a rescue mission. And Casey couldn't read nor write. And he would stand outside the rescue mission and he used to pass out tracts. And one day, there was a salesman who worked with the Fleischmann's Yeast uh, Company and he had some Fleischmann's Yeast uh, folders that looked a whole lot like, like tracts. It was a red uh, line that went across the front of it and he gave them to Casey as a joke and he said, Casey, here's some brand new tracts. And Casey said, oh, thank you. And he took them and he passed them out, you know, to the people walking by and he said, here's something to read about Jesus Christ. And all it did was tell about Fleischmann's Yeast. And the fellow went into the meeting and while he was sitting there his conscience began to bother him. And so he, he uh, thought he'd go out and take those Fleischmann's yeast things back and give him, give him some real tracts. But when he went out he couldn't find Casey. And he searched around for him a little bit and he found him in an alleyway. And he was down on his knees and he had a Fleischmann's yeast tract in his hand and he had another fellow on his knees with him. And he was saying to the fellow, see that red stripe over there? That stands for the blood of Jesus Christ that can cleanse you from all sin. And he was preaching the blood of Jesus Christ out of a Fleischmann uh, tract. He couldn't read, so it didn't bother him any, but he could, he could tell the man about Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes God uses, uses instruments that are not really, you might say, in a sense, uh, that well learned. God's willing to use people who, are, who want to be used of him. But here's a man who says, what's your name? What'll I tell him? And then, of course, the word comes back. The Lord says unto Moses, I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, I am had sent me unto you. Now that word, I am that I am, a more literal translation perhaps would be, all that I have been to your fathers. I will be unto you. All that I am to your fathers, I am unto you. That means simply this. With God there is no past. There is no future. Everything is present as far as God is concerned. And everything that God is to Abraham, everything that God is to Moses, the God who changes not is in our lives as well. All the power that would part a Red Sea, for instance, all the power 
that would bring water out of a rock. All the power that would feed 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. All the power that would raise the dead when Lazarus came forth from the tomb. All the power that would bring Jesus Christ from the grave. All the power that would bring him back someday is at your disposal and is at my disposal at this particular moment. For his power changes not. The Lord changes not. Because he is the I am. And so he says to, to Moses, I am that I am. And you tell them that I am had sent you. And then uh, in chapter 4, Moses comes up with another objection. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me. They will not hearken to my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. What credentials do I have? How will I get them to listen to me? And the Lord says to him, What have you got in your hand? And he said, A rod. And the Lord said, Cast it to the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said to Moses, Put forth thy hand. Take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they might believe that the Lord God of their fathers and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. And I know some of us might say, yeah, that's a pretty good story, but I've never thrown a rod on the ground, and no, no rod's ever turned to a serpent. And if it did, I would leave, you know. I'd never pick one up by the tail. I don't know if I would either. But what do I got in my hand? 1976, I have a book. A living book and when I read from this book this book has the power to change the hearts and the lives of people this book has the power to shut the mouths of fools this book it's God's Word what more can we say and when it speaks it speaks with authority it speaks with authority I have seen men take just a portion of this book I think back not too many though about three four years ago and I met a man who had spent 30 years being a drunk 14 years in the penitentiary I said at least you were sober when you were in a pen he said no I could get all I wanted to drink when I was in a penitentiary. He was the toughest of the tough. He said in the penitentiary, he said you, either one or two people, you were tough or you were weak. And he said if you were tough, the slightest bit of weakness, somebody would test you. And he said in all the years I was in a penitentiary, nobody tested me because I was the toughest. When he came to Hebron Colony, over in North Carolina I was filling in as the temporary director 
He came sick. His wife had divorced him about three months before that. His children had said, Dad, we never want to see you again. He decided he was going to drink himself to death and almost succeeded. His brother and his wife had gotten hold of him and began to look around for a place they could take him. And a newspaper in Atlanta said, there's a place over in North Carolina that might help, and they brought him up there. And when he came up there, he was, well, for the first couple of weeks, he was sick and he was surly, he was unfriendly, he was antagonistic. And we got nowhere with him at all. But as the weeks went by and we did something that was perhaps just a little bit foolish, but it got to him and he, we became friends together. And then as our friendship grew, he began to listen. And one day I said, asked him how it was with his life spiritually. And he said, oh, okay, I guess. I said, do you know the Lord? And he said, no. And I said, Jay, I'll tell you what you do. Let me give you a Bible verse. Then I want you to go off by yourself. And I want you to read that thing until you understand it. And the verse I gave him was a simple Bible verse in the book of Romans, which says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13 And this man took his Bible, went up into his bedroom, and he sat there for two solid hours. And he read it over and it said nothing. Read it over again, said nothing. At the end of an hour he kept reading it and every time he read it he said, Berkner said it's going to say something to me and it hasn't yet, but I'll read it. And he read it again and again. And all of a sudden he said that whosoever came alive and it said, why that means me. And then he began to read it that if J.C. would call upon the name of the Lord, he'd be saved. And he said, ah, that's too good to be true. No, that won't work. That won't work. But he read it over again. And he read it over again. He tried to explain it away. And after two hours, he said, it doesn't explain away. It means if I call on him, God's going to save me. And he closed his Bible, got down on his knees alongside his bed. And he said, Lord, you said if I call, you'd save me. And I'm going to call. Save me, Lord. And the Lord did. Miraculously. Wonderfully made a new creature out of this man. So much so, he went home, married his wife for the second time. His children came back and they're rejoicing in the fact that they have a new father. Because one portion of this word, and this is the authority. I'm not the authority. You listen to me speak and I give you a couple of million words and they roll off you like water off a duck's back. But when I give you the word... The word has power. And so he said, I don't have any authority. The Lord said, what do you got in your hand? And what do you have? So you have the word. And then finally, in verse 10, Moses says unto the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. The man who had been a great orator in his youth became a man who stammered and who stuttered. He said, I can't speak. And how many of you have said that? 
in days gone by. Oh, but I, could, I couldn't talk. If I get up in front of a crowd, I, I get tongue-tied. Well, join a club. I did too. I preached, the first sermon I preached, I wish I could remember it. Because I think I'm the only man who ever went from Genesis to Revelation and from Revelation back to Genesis in five minutes. Yes, I covered every major doctrine that I knew. I have to put that in. I did it in five minutes. I, I couldn't speak. I was shy. Painfully shy. And the Lord said unto him, Who made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, send I pray thee by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. Finally, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he sent Levi, Aaron the Levite, his brother. And Aaron became Moses' mouth, mouthpiece. And I think Moses could have handled the problem all by himself. Aaron became a hindrance in the work that Moses was doing rather than a help. It was Aaron who fashioned the calf of gold. It was Aaron who, who couldn't wait for Moses to come down from the mount. But you know something? God is a God who delights in picking out people, the most improbable people, the most improbable people, to use them in his ministry. Let me give you just one illustration. And this is a true illustration. Several years ago, at our camp, I had a missionary whom I had known when we were young people. We had a youth group back in the 1930s. Some of you don't remember back that far, but back up in New Jersey area, there was very few gospel-preaching churches. And I lived in a town of some 25,000, 30,000 people, and there was not a Bible-witnessing church in that whole area. But God saved some kids, teenagers. And uh, while we went to our own churches, we would band together in the evenings after church and we would meet for prayer, we would meet for chorus singing, we would meet for testimonies. And every Sunday night, two, three, four kids would get saved. Until we had a gang numbering about Oh, maybe 100, 125 kids. And out of that group came some, some real witnesses. There are at least 10, 15 of us in the ministry. And uh, this fellow's one of them. And uh, he was standing at our camp this day, being camp missionary. And he was watching the kids run up and down. And he said, you know, God is great. And I looked at him and I said, yes, God is great. He said, you don't understand. I said, all right, clue me in. He said, well, he said, I used to wonder, he said, when I was a kid, I used to wonder what would happen to all us folks when we grew up. And he said, I used to think of Vernon Grounds and uh, maybe he would be a great educator and he's president of a seminary out in Denver. 
He said, I used to wonder about Jack being an evangelist while he runs a Christian dude ranch over in Maryland. And he said, I used to wonder about this fellow being in the ministry, this fellow being in the ministry, that fellow being in the ministry. And he just went right down the line, one fellow right after the other. And he never mentioned me. And he stopped, took a breath. And so I looked at him and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, when it came to you? And I said, all right, when it came to me, what? And he said, well, you were the nearest nothing I ever knew. And I was a friend. Heavens knows what my enemies thought. And I said, thanks. He said, no, I mean it. I mean it. He says, when I think that you, and you had no talent, you had nothing. And when I thought back, he was right. I, I belonged on one of our gospel teams. We had a fellow who could play a trumpet. The other guy could play a, a violin. Together they would sing. We had three girls who were a duet, a tri trio, I mean. One girl played the piano. My talent, I owned the car. <laughs> that was it. But he said, when I think of what God is doing in your life, and I see the work that's going on here, all I can say, God, is great. Because you're nothing. And God had to do it. And I believe it. And I believe it. And some of you may be sitting here even today, and you're saying to yourself, I'm nothing. God will never use me. How do you know? Let God take over that life and give it to him. And then say, Lord, here it is. You operate in this life. And God can. God can. Even though you have no talents at all. Do you know why? Because he is God. He is the I am. The power. The one who can operate in your life. Shall we pray? Father, how many of us are so un unimportant and so ordinary? How many of us, Father, possess no gifts at all except one? And that one gift would be to yield ourselves unto the Lord of glory. To present these bodies to him a living sacrifice and asking God to possess this temple of clay that in the days to come thou wouldst work thy will through this poor body. We could not do anything, but you can do so much. So teach us, Lord, how to yield to thee. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.